Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Art Kellerman. Dr. Kellerman is a professor and senior vice president for health sciences at Virginia Commonwealth University and is the CEO of the VCU Health System. Dr. Kellerman has had a nearly four-decade-long academic career in medicine, and a cornerstone of his work is in the sphere of public health, particularly the epidemiology and prevention of firearm-related violence and injuries. In 1993, he, along with his team, published a critically important paper that, quite frankly, changed the course of gun violence research in the United States. It was published in October of 1993 in the New England Journal of Medicine. There's a link to it in the show notes. Gun Ownership as a Risk Factor for Homicide in the Home. The ripple effects of this paper went far and wide and led directly to something that we have all learned much about recently, the Dickey Amendment and its impact on funding for gun violence-related research in the United States. Having Dr. Kellerman come on and share his historical context of what he learned, saw, and experienced, why he did the work that he was doing at the time, and where we are now, how we can pick up and continue to move forward is absolutely essential learning. I am really proud of this episode. I'm really excited to be able to share it. It's really exciting to be able to have a guest with this sort of scope and length in their career to talk about such a critical issue in the United States. Before we get to the conversation with Dr. Kellerman, a quick reminder, please do check out the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. When you click on the archive, you will find the resource for all of the gun violence related content we've been doing on Explore the Space. There are remarkable conversations, brave, courageous, and important guests that we've been able to have on over the course of years. And I am proud to be a part of our profession working hard to get better at dealing with the public health emergency of gun violence in the United States. You can find me on social media at ETS show on Twitter at explore the space show on Instagram. You can email me anytime mark at explore the space And for sure, please do subscribe to explore the space podcast wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And please do share with your friends and colleagues that really helps us out. Let's get to our conversation with Dr. Kellerman. A brief word that his views are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of any of his current or past employers, funding agencies, foundations, or professional associations, or any of his colleagues. It was a treat to have him on. This was an important and a very unique conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, Dr. Art Kellerman. Art, welcome to Explore the Space podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome, Art. You are one of what is... 
I don't know what the right descriptive term would be, but you are one of the handful of firearm and firearm injury research scientists in the United States. One would have thought that over the course of many decades, there would be scores and legions of them. There aren't. You are one of them, and you have been in this space for decades. When you just sort of think about that fact, how does it sort of sit with you? Well, it's sad when you consider the cumulative impact of death, disability, suffering, loss, that uh, gun violence and gun uh, accidents have inflicted on this country through its history just over the last 10 or 20 years. It's kind of sad to realize how few medical and public health people work in this field. And, and just to slightly edit your characterization, I've actually not been active in this field since my last publication in 2013. At that point, I transitioned from the RAND Corporation, where I was doing some work on these issues, to uh, a civilian position in the Department of Defense. And while I certainly continued to uh, educate and advocate within the military, which, by the way, is an American organization that takes gun safety incredibly seriously. I was more or less knew that at that point I was becoming dean of a unique medical school and I needed to focus on other issues and really wound my work down in this field. I'm now leading an academic health system. Same rules apply. So while we may talk a bit about past findings, one of the tragedies in this is that a lot of the really relevant work, not just mine, but work by others, is increasingly dated. But I know we're going to get to that in a little bit. We are going to get to that. And, and one of the things that I think is so interesting and frankly poorly understood by the vast majority of healthcare professionals in America and certainly the public at large is why are we in this odd space where there is this paucity of researchers, this paucity of data, and you are one of those people who was at that interesting crossroads and, and played a part in a very interesting and quite frankly, rather bizarre moment in American history around the formation of the Dickey Amendment in the mid-1990s. But I'd like to start a little bit further back, and this is, of course, the historian in me. As a public health researcher in the early 1990s who was studying firearms and gun violence in the United States, again, in the early 1990s, what was the discourse like? What was the research atmosphere like? What, what was the interchange between colleagues like in that time that precedes most of us. I mean, I was in high school at the time. I wasn't even pursuing medicine yet. What was it like then as you were doing your research? Well, first of all, you didn't have to throw in that last line because that makes me feel really <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Sorry. But second, actually, I'd take you back a little bit farther than that, maybe when you were in elementary school, which is okay. the early to mid-80s, because that's when I got interested in the issue. Uh, I was born and raised in East Tennessee in a small town. My dad taught me to shoot. Uh, powder firearms when I got to be about 10 or 11 years old. I had BB guns much younger than that. Uh, guns were just another tool in my family. For us, primarily recreation, but uh, he taught me to handle a gun very carefully. He taught me to always know, never point at anything I didn't intend to shoot, always to assume a weapon was loaded, all the things that I think any Southern child grew up learning. 
I had a loaded shotgun in my closet in medical school because my landlady was a, a lawyer who handled a lot of divorce cases and thought it might be good to have her tenant in the backyard uh, able to help her out. What a dumb idea that was. But uh, as a resident, uh, I and who was gravitating to emergency departments at that time, I kept seeing victims of gunshot injury. And by and large, they were gun assaults. They were suicide attempts, often with devastating injuries, most of which died in the field, but some made it to the hospital. Uh, a fair number of unintentional injuries from people cleaning or horsing around with guns. And one day uh, in a research, uh, I was taken at that point studying public health uh, while I was starting my faculty uh, career as a research fellow. But uh, I just opined to a, a colleague that I kept seeing all these patients that I had never treated a bad guy who'd been shot by a homeowner. And I said, this just, what the heck is this all about? Surely somebody has looked at the question of whether keeping a loaded gun in your house makes you safer or less safe. And I went to the literature and there was almost nothing there. And that started me on this journey. And at the time, being young and crazy, I thought, this will be fascinating. It was sort of a, a sidebar from the more traditional public health type research I was doing. Uh, and as a Southerner and as a gun owner and as somebody who uh, had grown up around guns, I just was genuinely curious. And what I learned and what I found was very different than what I thought. And certainly even today, what is regularly communicated by advocates. It was only later with that information, not just mine, but the work of many other folks, Steve Hargarden, Garen Wintemute, and countless others, that it really was having an effect on the public and people were rethinking uh, their decisions. Not Notice, I didn't say gun control, I said personal choice, because most people wanna do the right thing for their families. They're interested in protecting and ensuring the safety of their families. And I think that was when it got a little bit too uncomfortable for some folks. And when uh, the study that you're mentioning came out in 1993, 94, we did two case control studies and they got such attention that I think that was the final straw for the political types. And they uh, had been going after me for years, but that's okay. I'm just a research guy and a doc. But when they went after the funding agency, that was really when they had an effect. So there's a, the, the, the paper that we're talking about, 1993, October, New England Journal of Medicine, the paper's titled Gun Ownership as a Risk Factor for Homicide in the Home. And it's one of those papers that I never saw it when I was a medical student, a resident, or an attending. It's, quite frankly, unless you're looking for it, it's not all that easy to find. It doesn't sort of populate across talks and a variety of the usual teaching tools that we would think we would see. I love the fact that it came from the same questioning mind that any of us use when we see something that just doesn't quite make sense in this profession. We create a hypothesis, we use the scientific method, and we study it. And that's what happened in this case. I'll ask you just briefly, of course, to summarize what you found in the paper. But more than that, before publication, did you have any idea what this was going to stir up? I had a pretty good clue at that point because I had okay. stirred a bit of a hornet's nest when I thought published my very first paper right out of my research fellowship, which had been really simple. And sometimes simplicity can be your greatest power. We simply, I worked with the medical examiner in King County then, and Don Ray ended up being a collaborator, partner of mine 
on research for a number of years after that. But we simply counted bodies. We looked at gun-related deaths in and around homes in King County, Washington. And we looked at how often the victim, the person who died, was an intruder or an attacker versus a member of the family or a nearby friend or someone. And the ratios were stunning. If you factored in suicides as well as homicides and accidental shootings, the ratio of, if you will, good guys or okay guys and gals to bad guys was 43 to 1. And that forty three to one. And uh, mainly because there were so many gun suicides involving people in their own homes. And that really generated immense attention very early on and got me, for better or for worse, on the radar at at that point, a quite young age. But uh, as you can imagine, what came back from critics was, well, you didn't count all the bad guys that were wounded. You didn't count all the bad guys that were scared off. You didn't count the bad guys that just decided since they knew that Mark Shapiro was armed to the teeth in his house that they'd go rob another house. And so that's why we did the case control study, because a well-designed case control study can detect protective effects, including non-lethal protective effects, as capably as it does effects that increase risk. And so we went that got that study in an incredibly careful and methodical way, at this point, funded by the CDC. And we had to pass the most rigorous peer review to get the funding in the first place. And then we had to pass the most rigorous peer review of the toughest journal in the world at that point, the New England Journal of Medicine, to get the work published. And it was subsequently validated. But there's still people who are absolutely go bonkers when you confront them with what we found, which was, in fact... After taking into account all kinds of other factors, neighborhood, age range of the victim or their matched control, multiple risk factors for domestic violence, prior arrests, et cetera, and took all those factors into consideration, homes where guns were kept turned out in that study to be uh, nearly three times more likely, not less likely, more likely to be a single homicide and were, in a subsequent study, almost five times more likely to be the scene of a suicide. And when we looked at that very limited subset of cases where an intruder was involved, the gun neither protected nor increased risk. It basically wasn't a factor. And that was too much for those folks who saw, as one person wrote at the time, Kellerman may not be advocating for gun control, but he's softening up America to make gun control possible. And uh, that and uh, what was really a much more targeted attack on the CDC itself. There was even an all out effort to defund an entire center at the CDC devoted to injury control. The result was the Dickey Amendment, a congressional compromise that basically stripped the CDC of the authority and the confidence to continue to fund gun research for really more than two decades after that. I have friends and colleagues who have published big, important papers in the New England Journal, and I've asked them about the experience. I have not been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but like you said, it's the biggest journal in the United States for for our profession. They all describe a sense of excitement, of euphoria, of joy, of satisfaction. I've done something important. I have done something noteworthy. We worked really hard to accomplish it. 
And now here it is to be consumed with all of the, as you said, validation that comes with the work that we've done and the work that the New England Journal does. I don't get the sense that that was the experience that you and your co-authors had, and certainly not the response from those seeing it in the public. Were you surprised by the response that you got and by what happened? Or was it sort of like, we're going to publish this and let's tool up because this is going to be really stormy? You know, at that point, actually, I, I have to say my colleagues and I, and, and we did a multi-city uh, study. This was not just at that point. In fact, I had moved and did my work in Memphis. Fred Rivara, still one of the most outstanding injury prevention researchers of the modern era in Seattle, and a third group in Cleveland, Ohio, were partners in doing this kind of work. And uh it was really, we were just excited to get to, you know, we just were after the truth. You've answered That's the question. All yeah. we cared about. And, <laughs> and you better believe we were excited to be in the New England Journal. Uh, I'm still excited. <laughs> it's rare times that I still publish a paper. It's, it's part of what docs, you know, are supposed to do. And, and again, we're not out trying to push a perspective on a patient. We're just trying to give them the best evidence to help them make decisions for themselves about their health, whether it's injury, disease, diet, exercise, you name it. Um, I did expect there'd be controversy. What I didn't expect was that there would be such a concerted federal effort directed at the funding agency. And that's the difference. And I wrote about this in an editorial to the American Journal of Public Health after, uh, shortly after the Dickey Amendment passed. It was if you think about it, probably the most impactful case control research in my lifetime, I'm a bit older than you, was the original case control studies that showed the link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. Well, early on, the tobacco lobby went ballistic over that. They hated it. They founded the Tobacco Institute to do counter uh, advertising, if you will, counter research. They then attacked the researchers as being zealots for public health and and men and women of science didn't agree with them, but they didn't go after the NIH and other institutes and try to shut down the research funding. And that was the difference in the approach that the NRA and the, and the gun lobby took. Uh, they took it out of a dispute involving science and took it, pulled it very quickly and vigorously into a uh, political arena and accused the researchers, including this, you know, dumb old Southern boy who grew up and was lucky enough to get into medical school as having an ideological agenda when, in fact, I'm a gun-owning Southerner who wanted to get to the truth because I thought every family would want to do what I would want to do with my family, which is make the best, wisest choice. And if you choose to keep guns to hunt, to target, shoot, or for any other reason, store them very securely so they can't fall in the hands of a depressed teenager, an angry spouse, or a klutz who's visiting you and just thinks they'll horse around with your gun. So the Dickey Amendment happens in 1996, and, and it's been a part of the arc of your career. We've done work on the Explore the Space and in other venues around learning about the Dickey Amendment, and there'll be links in the show notes for people who want the specifics of what that was in, in 1996. Over that course of time, though, over the course of years that go by, can you summarize the impact of the Dickey Amendment? Just what, how bad was this? How destructive and disruptive was this? Well, the language of the Dickey Amendment, in short, sounded innocuous enough. It said something to the effect of none of the funds used 
by the Centers for Disease Control can be used to advocate or promote gun control. Well, I don't think that there had really been a whole lot of advocating or promoting gun control. There was a whole lot of promoting gun safety that had been involved. But that was enough to chill, you know, a federal agency that really is dependent on Congress for its funding. And, and at the time of that amendment, they had asked the CDC how much per year were they spending on gun-related research. It was, get ready for this, don't fall out of your chair, $2.6 million for the entire country. And they said, okay, we're taking that money away from guns and we're going to earmark it for traumatic brain injury. That was all the CDC needed to know, as in, don't mess with this subject anymore. Now, you'd think that would have been bad enough, but a number of years later, uh, a guy by the name of Brannis, a brilliant researcher out of Philadelphia, did an even more elegant, and I say that as a person proud of that 1993 study, Brannis' study was even better. And he looked at not just people keeping guns in the house, he looked at people who were carrying firearms. That's a fairly hot issue these days. And he looked to see whether having a gun increased or reduced your risk of being shot or killed, whether it be on the street, at home, or anywhere else. And he found an even greater risk among people who carried a gun because it either, it's a first strike weapon, first of all. A gun isn't a terribly defensive weapon, it's an offensive weapon. And many of the people that he studied were victims of drive-bys or were shot suddenly before they had a chance to react or because they were armed, thought they'd go somewhere probably that they would otherwise have avoided. But when he published that study, two years later, the language of the Dickey Amendment was applied to every HHS agency, including the National Institutes of Health. So between the original Dickey language and the subsequent expansion, it essentially shut down all federal research with the exception of the National Institute of Justice, which has always done work on crime and violence. And I actually, when the Dickey Amendment happened, my research team and I kind of shifted over. I was at Emory at that point, and we really focused on partnered research with the Justice Department, local law enforcement, others. And over the next decade, in a partner relationship with the community, local law enforcement prosecutors, we were able to reduce gun homicides in Atlanta and gun assaults by 50 percent. But the NIJ's research agenda shifts pretty dramatically when different people are in power in the administration. Whereas before, the CDC had funded gun research through the Reagan administration, through the George H.W. Bush administration, through the Clinton administration. They were just about public health. They weren't about politics. And it's a shame. We, the sooner we get back to that, the better off the country will be. In parallel with that, what I experienced starting my medical training in 1996 is whether or not, and, and I, I would really love to hear your impression, and obviously you and I have talked about this in, in advance of this discussion, but I have not asked you this specifically because I'm really curious. I have a, my hypothesis is that a secondary effect of the Dickey Amendment was that it put sort of a de facto gag order on any sort of conversation or education, and because of the deprivation of funding, and then the paucity of research coming out in our profession, we look for the most recent stuff. And as the clock ticks, we'll look at the yeah. date stamp on a paper and we'll say, well, that's too old, so it can't be valid anymore. There was nothing for us to discuss. And so we have had two, perhaps three generations of physician and healthcare professional trainees where we haven't taught. Not only has there been no education, there's been no discussion around firearms, firearm safety, secure storage screening, 
any of this sort of thing. Is this a direct effect, an indirect effect, or not related to the Dickey Amendment? I, I think it's I think it's probably marginally related, Mark. Honestly, and I'm going to get on a little bit of a soapbox here, but not the one you're expecting. We don't do a very good job in uh, medical school about teaching people about any kind of injury prevention. We don't That's talk about point. car crashes as a health problem, although we dramatically reduce car crashes with seatbelts, better designed cars, et cetera. Residential fires, drownings. We have made enormous progress in all of those over the last 30 years. And you know what? We didn't ban cars. We didn't ban swimming pools. And we didn't ban matches. And so uh, most docs don't think of trauma or injury prevention the way we think about disease prevention. But that being said, guns, yeah, I think that was a special case. You did use a word, though, that I want to circle back to you for just a moment, which was you said gagging. And in fact, there has been literal gagging of doctors. You know, Florida pursued pretty aggressively a law that would forbid doctors from actually having a conversation about gun safety with their patients or could allow patients to file a complaint if they were offended by the conversation. Imagine if you were talking to a patient about sexual orientation or IV drug use or domestic violence or anything else, and they said, excuse me, I'm offended. I'm going to go get you up on uh, charges. Um, uh, several years back, two uh, former high-ranking uh, military officers wrote an open letter to Congress appealing them to reconsider a provision in the National Defense Authorization Act that year that prohibited military officers from talking to their enlisted personnel about private gun ownership, even if they were worried that the soldier might be suicidal. So we have had efforts to gag supervising military personnel, doctors, et cetera. And we've also gagged for those few researchers that got foundation funding or otherwise, some states have simply said their gun registration records or their criminal background check information or others is off limits to researchers. And so if you can't get research funding, you can't get access to data, and you can't talk to your patients, we shouldn't be surprised that today uh, you made the comment about how old my work is, and frankly, it's old. The public's perception that having a loaded gun in your home for protection is dramatically higher than when I published that paper in 93, or the papers that preceded it, or the work that others published that validated it over the next several years. In fact, this is a very well-established phenomenon in science that you increase the risk of tragedy to your family if you choose to keep a readily available loaded gun in your house, or if you walk around on the street, now that we know from Brannis' work, with a gun in your pocket. And yet, just this past weekend, there was a front page story in the New York Times about how the gun industry is using fear and the idea that that gun, that loaded weapon will protect you and protect your family as one of their major levers for promoting sales. And to me, that's a tragedy. That's like buying stock in ivermectin and saying, don't worry about getting vaccinated against this COVID thing. We got these, uh, uh, you know, various uh, patent medicines or, or veterinary meds, et cetera, that'll, that'll do you wonders. Yeah, well, I guess some people are doing that too. I don't want to ask what's been lost because we like to be proactive particularly on this podcast, and I think as physicians and healthcare professionals, we just sort of do 
an assessment of where we are and get some situational awareness and start moving things forward, whether it's at the bedside or in the recess bay or on a public health issue. So acknowledging that we've got a huge gap of decades now, where do where do you like to see us begin as individual physicians, as healthcare organizations? Where is the low hanging fruit to start acknowledging we are dealing with a public health emergency in the United States around firearms and gun violence? Where are the most effective places do you think we should be starting? I think that as physicians, uh, as public health practitioners, we, we always need to be grounded in data out of the truth, as objective as we can possibly be. But I think physicians can be powerful advocates in this space because we're witnesses. We, are, we speak for our patients. We can, we can express with all appropriate allowance for HIPAA what a patient we took care of last week or last month went through and how that illustrates these principles. Um, I think physicians as advocates for public health for doing the right thing for patients is something that we need to do more of and maybe less worrying about our pocketbook or other issues. Not that those aren't important, but you know, this isn't a lobbying matter. This is a matter of practicing medicine at a grand scale, policy as well as individual patient level practice. But it's always gotta be based in evidence. It's always gotta be based in objectivity. It can't be to pursue an agenda other than to protect the health of our patients and to promote the safety of families. And I think if we try to stay grounded, uh, those of you, I'll have fun back and say, in the younger generation, uh, you know, that can make a difference. If, if I could wish anything at this point, that it would be that there is, would be enough funding to do good, credible, objective research and call me corny. I'd like to think that still matters to some people in this country that science really does count for something. But that also, I'd love to see some people go back and either replicate or disprove those papers I published 20, 25, or 30 years ago. Because you know what? They are old. Maybe things are different now. I don't think they're very different. I think people's basic human nature hadn't changed. You know, at the end of the day, it's not about getting rid of guns. And we're never going to completely stop violence, no matter how hard we try But what we can do is we can find very practical and effective ways to keep the two apart as often as possible. A gun without violence is a weekend of hunting or target shooting with dad. Violence without a gun, well, you and I probably dealt with that many times in our careers. That's a fist fight. It may be a blowout orbital fracture. It might even be a stab wound. But, you know, we can pretty much bail a patient out from those. But multiple gunshots to the torso or the head, that's a different story. And so how can we keep those two, the most lethal weapon readily available in America today, apart from violence, whether it's self-directed or directed at others? And if we do that using good old practical American know-how and a commitment to the truth and objectivity, I think we can make a difference. You know, people's decisions for themselves and their families should be based on objective evidence and truth not a bumper sticker, not a blog post, not a slogan. And yet that's where we are today and we're paying a terrible price for it. The cornerstone of our screening when we screen for everything from seat belts to sunscreen to age-appropriate cancer screening is all based in 
reams of evidence, thoroughly vetted evidence. And we feel comfortable then in that space at the bedside, in the clinic, whatever the case may be, to talk about those things and to then present a choice and do some counseling and go through all of the steps of screening, acknowledging that it sometimes can be a journey. I I would submit around this issue of firearms because there's been so little discussion in our profession of everything from how does a firearm work to what is a gun lock, what is the definition of secure storage, to what is the evidence base. It puts us on our back foot. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Um, And that's not a great place to be when you're at the bedside. You're going to shy away from it. Um, especially when you don't know how to necessarily answer those key questions or deal with the maybe the anger that rises when you ask somebody about whether there's firearms in the home. For for us right now, as we sit in the middle of 2022, are there ways that you counsel and educate physicians and trainees that that are rising now to to mitigate that now, so that tomorrow when they're in the clinic or in the hospital or whatever the case may be, doing their work, that they can have a little bit more comfort stepping into that tension to do that appropriate screening and to have those conversations? I think that, you know, first of all, it helps. We do this with uh, young trainees all the time. Giving folks a script can make a difference. Uh, when we did one of those early studies, we, we always opened our question with what we call a permissive statement. You know, anywhere from 40 to 50 percent of all homes in America have one or more guns. Are guns of any kind kept in your home? Notice I didn't say, do you own guns? I didn't ask you what kind of guns. I didn't ask you if they were registered. I just said, are guns of any kind kept in your home? And depending on your answer, which and it should be in a very matter-of-fact way, then you can kind of go forward and then say, well, can I walk you through just a couple of things that might help you with your decisions about how you might want to choose to store those guns? Um, you know, have, it, gee, it sounds like you're having a lot of trouble at home right now, and you're really you're struggling with some things. Have you thought about having a friend just kind of take your guns for a week or two just so you're not tipped in the middle of the night to do something that you would never be able to recover from? Uh, vets have been teaching that to each other now for years. And, you know, it, it is ironic for a guy that was portrayed over and over again as being an anti-gun zealot. I, for seven years, I was the dean of the only medical school in America that mandated that all of its students have small arms training. Uniform Services University, the military's leadership academy for military doctors. Um, a couple of times I got out and uh, trained with them. Uh, I once hosted a seminar workshop over a weekend with a bunch of public health researchers and have law enforcement officers in Atlanta teach them all about guns, how they work, and then we took them out to the range because we thought having that functional knowledge would help make people be more informed scientists. So just like we treat, do we teach our residents to understand pathophysiology, understand phenomena. I think basic understanding of the mechanics and safety and how to handle weapons properly is a good part of an education. But at the end of the day, again, it's just sad how so much today in public health and medicine has been politicized. And we've all lost something terribly from that. When even the most basic scientific evidence is immediately thrown back in your face as being political, whether we're talking about climate change or we're talking about reproductive choices or we're talking about any of a number of topics. Uh, our job is just to take good care of patients and give them evidence and help them make decisions for themselves. Let other people worry about the politics. It's, it's fascinating as a history major and as a historian to get that perspective from the late 1980s and the early 1990s and have it framed 
with how and where we are now. I think it's incredibly valuable. I'm biased because I love history. I think the study of history is vital and important, but it does give us a better understanding of we didn't just end up here. There was a sequence of events that that got us to this place that we have some control over too. And so we also can try to leverage different kinds of, of vigor to move forward in a different way. We don't want to reproduce the past. We want to see if we can move things forward. The What you've laid out for us and the framework that you've given us, I think is vitally important. We'll have links in all of the show, no- in the show notes to all of this, the, the studies that you mentioned as well. As you, as you move forward, right, you've had a long career now steeped in this. What would you like to see happen over the course of the next couple of years from the perspective of the generations of physicians who are really now moving into the heart of their career around the public health emergency around gun violence and firearms? Well, I'm proud of the fact that medicine in general, American College of Surgeons, emergency physicians, internal medicine, pediatrics, American public health, by and large, the health and public health community of this country have been united all along on this issue. I, I do see, uh, you know, as again, I've not been really active in this field now since 2013, but there are a number of, of very effective, skilled people working. And now, at least for the moment, that there's some opportunities at the CDC and other federal agencies to fund work, perhaps we'll see some more impactful research coming out. But I also see with the fragmentation of social media, with the politicization of almost everything in American life. I mean, when's the last time you had dinner with people you didn't know really well? And the moment anybody says anything about politics, everybody kind of goes on the edge and goes, oh, let's back off, let's back off. Family reunions, whatever the case may be. I never thought in my lifetime that that the toxicity of political discourse would reach the point where the most basic conversations are immediately labeled political. in this space, yeah, I figured, you know, even going in as a, as a guy fascinated by guns, I figured we were going to poke the NRA in the belly. And, and I, I kind of thought that would be interesting. Boy, did I learn. But, uh, but today, it's taken to a whole nother level. I mean, I was, I was accused of being, you know, uh, a junk scientist, et cetera. Uh, but I didn't get the kind of threats that public health researchers and physicians get today. Uh, a, a dear cousin of mine who has worked in some of the most dangerous conflict areas in the world told me that the most hazardous job that he had in his career was being the public health officer in a rural county in uh, California during the pandemic because he advocated for vaccination and mask wearing. That got him death threats. That's where we are today as a country. A straight, I just yeah. hope and pray we could walk it back. For all of our sake and for this democracy and for a country that I dearly love and would never leave, I just hope that we all together, every single one of us, regardless of our political perspective, remember, we're Americans first. Americans have always looked out for each other. We can disagree. We can disagree strongly. We can argue about the evidence all day and all night. But let's remember that basic commitment there is a truth out there. Let's try to find it and let's work with each other. No better way. I'm not running for office. Just letting you know. (laughs) I've already asked you that once before. (laughs) No better way. No better way for us to go out though. That, that is a a wonderful and a moving summary. And I really appreciate it. Art, this was a treat. Uh, I, I appreciate you, you know, opening up some old closet doors and 
sending me some papers from your archives and helping me to learn and get better around this as well. I really hope that this conversation continues to do that for others because this is le- this is important legacy stuff. And I think for us to frame it in that way so we can move forward towards what you lay out as something aspirational is vital and, and powerful. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, Mark, thank you. You must be a pretty good historian because you found me after all these years. Thank you. My thanks once again to Art for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Please do check out the show notes. The articles that he references, they are linked in the show notes. They are worth your time. They are important documents, and they provide so much critical historical context, as well as structured education for how we can continue to move forward. Thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship Programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And thanks to you so much for listening. We are dealing with another public health emergency in the United States around gun violence. And frank, open, and honest conversations like this one and like so many other ones that are happening on so many different platforms are critically important. They are inspiring. They are motivating And it is in that spirit that this episode comes out and the entire archive of episodes related to gun violence in the United States from Explore the Space are presented. And I certainly hope that they they can be taken in that way as learning opportunities, as ways we can continue to work together to get better. They can for sure be shared with whomever you like, and I would encourage you to do so. Please do hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, and feel free to email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. The Archive of Explore the Space podcast is at www.explorethespaceshow.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will be back soon with more great content. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.